Okay, today on Early Music Monday, we get to have an amazing conversation with Dr. Jesse Roden, professor at Stanford University. He's a Joscan scholar, a fantastic performer-conductor, and the founding artistic director of Cut Circle. This is Early Music Monday. Okay, Dr. Roden was introduced to me by Dr. Caroline Buff. If you remember a while back, our conversation episode, where we talked about DuFi a little bit, um, and it was so fun. Our conversation was a blast, and I learned a lot about Joscan and about Renaissance aesthetic that I hope you learn a lot from as well, and if anything... You know, it's one of those things where there's this balance we all play of what's historically accurate and what's kind of popular or what's the style of the day and how do you bridge the gap between the two. And something that I really like about Cut Circle is the historical accuracy, and it's a different approach. We have had a lot of... um groups on or people from groups conductors singers etc from the uk and they sing with this beautiful i think is quote-unquote perfect sound aesthetic of renaissance music but professor Roden's approach and cut circles approach is different and the reason why i like it is because i love the idea of gathering all of these different perspectives and lenses and ways to look at things and kind of smorgasbord them together into something that's a little bit of all things. It's kind of like really, really good Mexican food. All you do is you take, you know, when you get Mexican food on one side of the plate is the rice and then in the middle is the main dish, your enchiladas, burrito, tacos, fill in the blank, et cetera, et cetera. And then on the right is the beans. Well, really, the only way to eat Mexican food is by taking two forks and shredding up whatever's in the middle and mixing it all together with the beans and the rice. And that's what my goal is with early music, is you take this approach, this approach, this approach, this approach, this approach, and you Mexican food them together. And you get a delicious entree, which is early music. So... This is a different approach and one that I find super fascinating and really beautiful and is fantastic. So I love his approach and I love the research that he's done on Joscan. There will be some links to some articles and some other research that he's done in the show notes. Be sure to check those out. And uh, without any more, I, I just love saying the word dile dale in a British accent, but without any more dile dale, here is our conversation with Dr. Jesse Roden. Okay, Dr. Roden, I am so excited to have you on the show because um, ever since I talked with uh, Dr. Buff, Carol Ann, uh, out at IU, um, we talked about Dufayi and we talked a little bit about my show and she had mentioned that you're a Joscan scholar and this was like a year ago and I instantly wrote your name down and said, okay, I will reach out and it finally got it. And I, I would love to just pick your brain about all these things. I had a chance to watch the video that you sent and uh, read the article and so many great ideas. So my first question is, is how did you come to you know, I would just love to hear your story of how did you come to study music and to want to pursue a, a music degree and a career? And then how did you end up being a professor? Yeah, you know, like so many of these stories, it's you look back and you, you think a little bit, well, how did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I was always, uh, there, I come from a family of intellectuals, but none of them are music people, really. There was a, a mm -hmm. lot of music in the house, though. A lot yeah. of singing in the house, nothing whatsoever to do with Renaissance polyphony, but a lot of a lot of music. And so um, I think that was a starting point. 
plus singing in some uh, choirs as, at a young age, um, again, without any exposure to these repertoires. But I think you, you sort of take those things together and then add to them kind of general interests in the humanities in school, you know, even as a kid, um, yeah. history and languages and stuff like that. And I found myself at UPenn as an undergrad um, with uh, in, in a department that happened to be really strong in early music. I didn't even know this, but yeah, I, cool. <laughs> I was a student at this at this place and um, found myself singing in a in a in an ensemble called Ancient Voices. It was a group specializing in early music. Found ourselves doing an Okagam mass during the first semester of my freshman year, which was way too hard. Whoa. <laughs> And a, you know, trial by fire, but I made it through to the concert, and that, and I was sort of hooked. And from then, it was just a matter of connecting with the faculty who were there and doing some coursework in independent studies and being kind of advised into graduate school and and, and so on. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. So, with that Akagem Mass, what connected you to that? Like, what what about that piece in particular captivated you? Was it the chance that was it just kind of per chance that? there was this really high mountain in front of you and you went and you succeeded and that yeah. just kind of kept you going in a combination or kind of what was it you think about that piece? So I think it's three things, probably there are more, but there are at least three things. One is that uh, rhythm has always been something that I, that I like and care about and I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, rhythmic activity, rhythmic energy, contrasts and, you know, uh, yeah. and, and Akagam, Gives you a lot of rhythm. This was the Misa de en plus, and I was singing the low. I was singing Basus, which is has some real wild, wild ride kind of lines. So that's yeah. that's one. And just and so related to that is the mountain. Um, to, yeah. You know that that the difficulty for someone who'd never done this was working with unfamiliar looking editions where the whole note gets the beat and all this kind of thing. Yeah. That that was quite. I remember going into the dining halls at at UPenn, you know, and showing friends this like impenetrable looking music notation and thinking like, this is what I'm about to go to. After dinner, I'm going to go to this rehearsal and try not to die. And, um, and so part of it was, yeah, just just the, the challenge. You know, that's something that still drives me, I think, the love of a challenge of something that's just yeah. a little bit too hard. Um, but then also as a singer, someone who always had, had sung, you know, vocal music, sung music uh, informally, but and formally, the realization that this was a repertoire where there are four independent lines and they're all mm. they're all in their way equally interesting uh, yeah. there's no there's no accompaniment there's no viola sitting on a d for a, for a whole page and so <laughs> right and so uh, that sense of, yeah I knew four violas. <laughs> that, the sense yeah. of, the, of the of the whole being greater than the sum of the parts and there being a sort of like impenetrable complexity um mm -hmm. or, or it's not even impenetrable just the, this the, the feeling that you know your your own very interesting line magically lined up with these other things that were themselves very interesting and uh, independent of yours. And, and there's so much to attend to as a listener. Yeah. Um, and you, and as a, as a singer at, while you're performing, there's so much to attend to also. So all of that together, it also just sounds great. Um, yeah. Yeah. Probably what, what hooked me first. Though. That's cool. That's amazing. And I wonder, so that makes me think a lot of, you know, when you, when you talk about rhythmic, kind of that you, you have this idea and this um, draw pull to rhythmic energy or complexity is, uh, is the, your group that, that you've started out there uh, at Stanford of uh, Cut Circle. Um, tell us a little bit about how that came about, that group. And I, I think that your approach to early music is so great, um, that, that kind of primal sound world and that whole approach and and does that rhythmic drive i mean i see that okay it makes total sense then that you would name yourselves cut circle if that rhythm is kind of what pulls you in you know then how does that kind of influence the group and all that kind of thing yeah yeah so so when i was a grad student at harvard um in my third year there was this opportunity to lead the kind of like graduate student chorus whatever it was uh, well, yeah. somebody I couldn't I remember, couldn't do it for one concert, and so I was pulled into that. Um, I did I did direct a, an undergraduate ensemble, which is a little like late Renaissance music, but but no, um, that experience was like oh well, let me choose something I don't know and and you know try mm. some piece I don't know, and so that was the beginning of trying to to direct anything to do with this repertoire, 
Um, but as I got deeper into my dissertation research, which was on Josquin, but also his contemporaries in the mm. chapel, the period where in the end of the 15th century when he was there, realizing that there, there just not a lot of the music was available to hear. Yeah. Um, uh, and even the music by Josquin, not exactly well represented in the recording catalog, but right. certainly anything by any of his contemporaries, you, you basically couldn't find. And so yeah. I needed a laboratory in part, um, but it was more than, it was also that I really wanted to be inside the pieces. That's something that from an early, uh, early, early on was emerged as being very important. And it relates to my own training, which is, I didn't say this before, that my background um, I, is such that I came to notation pretty late. So mm -hmm. I, was, I was singing, but learning a lot by ear. Sure. Uh, and that's something I still do. And, and so I still kind of, I sort of memorize the polyphony. <laughs> yeah, cool. <laughs> giving an extent, um, not always trying to, but it's just, it's my, my primary way of access is through the years. Um, and so that turned out to be a kind of useful thing. Uh, at first yeah. I was worried about it, you know, but it turned out to be a kind of useful thing because you get the pieces in your body, not just yeah. in your eye, mind's eye or whatever. And it's not only when the rhythms are hard, by the way, but I just think that let's just say the long 15th century, uh, and we could go backward yeah. and forward with this observation, but like for now, let's sure. do that up to Josquin's death. Even when Josquin is writing fairly simple music, there's still yeah. incredible rhythmic drive. Uh, for him, it's about motives, right? It's about like short yeah. little ideas that are repeated and, and, and whether they're simple or not, they have this rhythmic drive. And I sort of came to get this, understand this point from, from performing and working, working with the stuff, but there, was some kind of confusion I couldn't overcome about the recording catalog, which never yeah. had rhythmic drive. I mean, it was like yeah. the last thing you would ever observe on the basis of listening to these recordings, <laughs> right. which are many of which are very beautiful. I mean, don't get me yeah. wrong. Um, I would sit on the train going back and forth to Manhattan where I grew up um, from, from Philadelphia, listening to the Talos scholars, sometimes on repeat, uh, some of right. these losses, and that's how I fell in love with this repertoire. So, so I, I'm right. really grateful for that. Um, but as time went on, it sort of increasingly dawned on me that something wasn't quite right, that something yeah. was missing. Um, and that's mm. one of the things that seemed to be missing. Um, so that's a, yeah. little bit, a little bit where that started. And then it was a matter of finding singers who wanted to do this, who, who were willing to do this. And there were just some wonderful people around, Carol Ann among them, um, yeah. who, who would indulge me in like trying to, to put on some concerts and you know, yeah. just a very young ensemble there in the Cambridge uh, area. Um, but it just, it's, it just kept evolving. It kept, uh, it kept going a little further, I mean, a little further and, and it kept changing. And then I moved out here in, in uh, 2007 and yeah. uh, kept doing more and started to actually doing some recording and, and, and those conversations, you know, are ongoing and, and yeah. we in no way have arrived at the final point. And I think that's one of the things that for me is so exciting, the sense that um, we are figuring stuff out all the time, and the sound yeah. is is changing. I would say improving. I mean, I would say, yeah. <laughs> I would yeah. say we're finding stuff that's making us feel more and more confident that what we're doing is on the right track, um, but that it's a you know it's an evolution and it's a journey. Yeah, um, yeah. I think that's fantastic, and because I, I agree, I feel like it, I don't know. I one of the reasons I started this podcast is. I, I I see our vision as the, the pro choir. I've started Sound of Ages and this podcast being of we're bringing it out of the museum and, and to the people because that's who would have enjoyed it in the time. But then there's just been so much time that's passed that it, it almost seems like this sacred relic of, okay, you, mm -hmm. you have to do this a certain way or you're not allowed. But... But okay, how do we bring it to, and I think Cut Circle totally fits into that vision of, look, at, here's this cool thing we've found, now like come and, come and enjoy it with us kind of thing. And so what do you guys do? Um, I, I, you can even talk about that video a little bit that you shared with me, and we'll post a link to that in the show notes, because I think that video, you know, that it shows so well what you guys do and what you're kind of working on now and but what do you guys do as an ensemble to really help the audience, the average audience, or even the musically inclined audience come to that music? Yeah, well, I mean, if I could just pick up on one thing you said before about, you know, about taking it out of the museum, that's, 
that's one thing that I've increasingly felt has, is actually possible. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I felt that originally. We, we were in Italy doing around um, the, the 500th anniversary of Josquin's death in August. We were in Italy doing concerts and I, I speak Italian and because and, and, we lived there for a year. And so I was talking to yeah. taxi drivers and people in restaurants and so on, friends, and realizing that those are the people I want to hear. I, I want to come hear this music. I mean, yeah. We don't necessarily have any background. But the way right. we're singing it, yes, there are issues of foreign language and, and styles that are unfamiliar. It's not to say that it sounds like Beyonce, but, <laughs> but, um, but it, 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 does, <laughs> it does feel to me like we're finding ways into it that are not simply, it's not like presentism, we're trying to make it sound like, no, it's that the ways we're finding um, to, to, to perform it that feel right, that feel right for the period, yeah. which I think we have some reason to believe are closer to what would have happened or to a kind of spectrum of things that would have happened happen also to be much more accessible, you know, where, yeah. where rhythmic drive can come through, where the, where the individual melodic lines are really audible, where there is a sense of motion and flow that um, isn't so abstract and abstracted as I think has simply become the sonic ideal of, of in a way, the whole classical music world. Right. Um, but certainly the early music world, which is like a chip off that block. Um, yeah. and, and so, you know, what I'm trying to do now with Cut Circle is just in, interrogate ever more deeply um, in a self-critical way, the origins of this modern early music sound, which has really become, it's so pervasive. It's like, a, you know, it's, it's, it's basically the default. There, there are some interesting exceptions, but it really sure. is a default sound. Uh, like I said, it can be very, very beautiful. And it's not that there, it's not that we're trying to do something where we never sound like that, right? That's right. So, that's silly. It's not about that. There are moments where we do sound quite a lot like that because that's a beautiful right. way to sound. And but um, from from every vantage point I come at this, I, I I reach the conclusion that as a default, that just does not work for this repertoire. Yeah. And it's more about the Anglican choral tradition of the 19th century and the way of singing that became popular in, in, again in the 19th century and and that sort of was transformed into this vibrato-free early music sound. It's more about that then it is what, whatever we can discern, which is mostly through negative evidence, but whatever right. we can discern about the 15th century. It's not like we have a lot of people telling us how they sang. But right. what we do have is something of the history of vocal pedagogy, um, right. where we can infer backwards from what we, what we know didn't yet exist. Yeah. And then we have the sources from the period. We do have the books in which the music survived and we know how the music is notated and how you actually go about doing it. And there are certain there are certain truths I think that emerge from doing it that way that you kind of can't yeah. the other way and certain funny ideas in the modern performance tradition that could only have emerged in the absence of an experience with original sources mm. just don't make any sense with, 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 with the, the original sources in front of right. you. Right. Right. And especially if you're thinking about like, I don't know that there's this, there's this balance of, I think that, that music, music and especially singing, I, the, the more I get into the voice, the more I realize that singing isn't necessarily the pursuit of a certain aesthetic. It's the pursuit of a certain process mm -hmm. of balancing different opposites. And so I think that there's, and then not just in physiological balances, but philosophical balances of, okay, we take this of, there's this primal sound that we all make and humans biologically are probably not that different than we were maybe than we were thousands and thousands of years ago, but 500 years in the span of history is actually not that long. Mm -hmm. And so if this line felt free and easy to sing by doing it a certain prescribed way, well then th there's two sides of, okay, well let's sing it free and easy now. Why, there's there's not necessarily versus then okay there's this aesthetic principle of you know bel canto versus this kind of more primal sound too so i think it's really interesting and i think your the approach of cut circle to pursue this more um for lack of a better word i guess primal sound maybe unrefined but not well not unrefined yeah. it's <laughs> this, this is where it gets tricky right it, yeah i'm not really sure how to describe it uh, other than just it, 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 because the default would be like bel canto is the refined version, but that's not really it either right. of this high larynx, higher, higher larynx, mm -hmm. brighter forward, almost speech-like sound, but it's still free and easy. It's not this, I mean, 
if the if the tenor singing up there is like yelling and it hurts their voice, then that's not exactly the right process to pursue that early sound either, because okay. they wouldn't have done it that way, right? Mm-hmm. So so how do you kind of come to those things of like okay, a modern singer comes to you who's been taught in the bel canto, you know, low larynx, release the jaw, and all this uh, this dark warm sound. Mm-hmm. How do you you know, and how do your professionals, if you're doing workshops or other things with younger students or college students, approach this kind of brighter, more raw sound in a healthy way? Mm-hmm. No, it's a great question. And and as you as you see there, the metaphor, it gets very tricky, these metaphors. Yeah, it's so hard. Um, you know, for example, trained versus untrained. I mean, Stevie Wonder's trained. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Like, so like trained. The, the world, yeah. I mean, the pop world trains its musicians. Big like time. in a very specific way, right? Exactly, yeah. as do lots of other traditions around the world. So, mm-hmm. so sometimes I think in the in the Western classical music world, it, we can forget, or those trained in that tradition can forget that that's it's not that way or the highway. I mean, there, there are lots yeah. of different vocal trainings, and totally. um, lots of different ways for the for voices to sound good. There are also just lots of different voices in the world. So you know, yeah. even a completely untrained voice. Um, out of the box, right? Uh, yeah, they don't all sound the same at all, right? I mean, they, they and that's a in part of that's a product of culture in every case, but in some, it's also mm-hmm. a product of physiology. Yeah, and, and so that so there's going to be a, a uniqueness to every person uh, that, yeah. that you can that you can try to um, destroy. You can try to, to yeah, homogenize, totally. but if you allow it to 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 remain, that will color whatever else happens. Right? Sure. So, so as part of this is, is um, precisely not wanting to hitch our wagon to any one other tradition, mm-hmm. right? That it's not about like, ah, the only way to sing Renaissance polyphony is to try to sing like Ethel Merman, right? Right. <laughs> right. By the way, I would have loved to hear Ethel Merman singing Renaissance <laughs> polyphony. It would have been it's amazing. Not for everyone. Um, yeah, but yeah. Of, but no, it's, it's, it's the opposite in a way. And I, I have an article that I, that I shared with you that, um, you know, where I just went trawling really through YouTube videos for choral music from around the world, the point of which was simply to kind of come to a greater appreciation of all the different ways the voice can sound good in mm-hmm. all these traditions, uh, some of which are very, you know, it's not about sophisticated or unsophisticated training, right. not at all, but, but that span the gamut, and all of which seem to have in common a, a, a laryngeal position. So this is basically singing more like talking, right? That's middle or high, yeah. middle or high, and not low, which is the low larynx is this when we can all right. do it radio announcers do it you know yeah you, you can, but i don't i certainly don't know anyone who speaks that way naturally and i don't i don't think that's really a thing particularly I mean, yeah I, there could be examples but none that i know so you yeah. have to train it you have to train it. and it can it does produce something very beautiful i mean don't get me wrong that all those metaphors of warmth and resonance and space right. uh we do that sometimes I, i'm sure they did that sometimes too the question is is yeah. that the fault? is that the thing you yeah. always do and what are the benefits and costs of doing it? So to me, the problem with it is that it's precisely against, opposed to the idea of presence. It's opposed mm. to the idea of directness, direct communication. Yeah. It's about spaciousness and distance. Yeah. That's what it, that's what it Interesting. invites. Again, this is all metaphorical language is why it's so tough. Yeah. But I think that's her, and then what comes along with that and what we talk a lot about are vowels. Um, because yeah. the languages, you know, the native, the languages native to the singer's you know, in, in involved here in, in this period. Yeah. French well, that was going to be my next question is mm-hmm. how do you think dialect affects that same singing thing? Because yeah. I'm sure that also, even, even if there's cultural similarities, like back then you have like, you know, Northern Italy versus Southern Italy, or, you know, this Irish tradition versus the London tradition. And how does that dialect affect the way that the audience would have heard it? So, yeah, yeah, keep going. Definitely, and that, that's a great question. And, and that's in a way where we have to go still, because, you know, the last thing I want to do is suggest that they only did it one way. They all did it the right. same way, all of them. That's, that's, this is the problem. We always fall into this kind of essential right. thing. Oh, we, if we could only discover the medieval mind, what the hell does that mean? They yeah, exactly. Too, right? <laughs> you know, uh, they are right. So, so right. I think, it, yeah, it's dialect, it's language. I mean, there, you know, how much can we extrapolate backward from modern French, right? You know, yeah. there, there are limits, there are limits, but there are certain things. I mean, there's a tendency toward bright vowels by the standards of American English, for example. Yeah, totally. And, and, and Italian, ah, I mean, ah, not all, oh, but ah. Oh, 
Yeah. And that, and and to the extent that we think that that uh, applied, um, what it encourages for us is is bright vowels as a, as a default. Again, not the only option, but as a default. Um, yeah. And when you combine bright vowels, which which again metaphorically are forward sounding, direct yeah. sounding, with this middle or high laryngeal placement, you get a sound that starts to get very in your face. Yeah, now, in your face is literally what I was about to say, right, <laughs> which is now, awesome. Which can be awesome. And even there, though, let's remember, we have to think of like dials on a stereo right. system. We have all these different dials because, first of all, we have the acoustical environment. So, if yeah. this, so even with tapestries on the walls, these are reverberant. Even inside chapels with tapestries on the walls, which is where some of this stuff happens, these are still reverberant environments. So it's not, yeah. as if, it's not as if it's like listening to a voice like that in a closet. It will have right. some space around it by the, you know, the, the acoustic end. So that's one important dial that you, you can easily forget about. Then the vowels can, um, can match different laryngeal positions. So you could have a mm. lower or middle larynx that, where it is a little more spacious, but the vowels quite, quite bright. Mm. Um, right. And by, you know, those are three of the most important parameters, I think, that it, just by sort of turning those dials, you can, you can end up with lots of different sounds. Um, so yeah. I think sometimes the tendency will be, you know, among those who are really steeped in the in the Western classical early music tradition, to 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 hear what we're doing. Oh, it just sounds like controlled yelling, uh, is what I've heard. Right. Sure. And I would I would respond, no way. That's just not <laughs> what it is. Uh, right. Or if you want to make that claim, unfortunately, what you're really sort of starting to say is that most vocal traditions around the world are controlled yelling. Yeah, which it, it, I I would define it that way, but I would also define opera as refined yelling and well, bel canto as I think all singing to some extent is refined yelling because yeah, that's, that's there's this point. kind of you know especially if you're a tenor. But anyway, that's a whole other uh -huh. point. No, no, that's that's actually a great point. You know, you can turn it back on that very argument. But yeah. I, I also think it's it's just painting with too fat a brush. Uh, that yeah. there's so much variety. You know it can be soft, it can be loud, it's sometimes high and sometimes low. But when it's high in a person's range, um, I don't think the solution, and again, I have lots of reasons to say this, that, that start from the way the music seems to be composed. It's not mm. just a thought that um, I don't think the solution is to try to back off to the point where your high notes sound as much as possible like your low notes, which is, of course, one aesthetic ideal of, right. of classical training. Um, no, I think you should be heard to be huffing and puffing when it's yeah. high up. Yeah. And, and, and to varying degrees and in various contexts, depending on how it works. But, when, but often those moments are carefully controlled by the composer. There's a, yeah. a very sudden increase in rhythmic activity in all the voices. And lo and behold, they all ascend in their ranges to these high notes. Yeah. I mean, is that an accident? I, yeah, I suppose no way. anything could be an accident. But no, I mean. <laughs> It's yeah, no way. It's too much evidence to the contrary, I think. And, that's, so. and that, again, gets back to my approach to this repertoire in general. You know, how much of this can I memorize and take in, in, you know, embody to the point where I can make a claim like that and feel like it rests on something real? Um, yeah. Anyone can look at one page of music. But the question is, you know, can I, can I come to these passages and I'm always keenly aware of all that I do not know because I don't know right. more than I know. I mean, this is the right. problem. Um, yeah. But can I come to these passages with a sense of what the, what the forest is, you know, so that I can yeah. evaluate each tree accordingly. And with a composer like Josquin, I do know all the music that by now, um, all, the, all the music yeah. that I think he, we have a chance that he actually, I, I don't know all of it equally well, but I know enough of yeah. it that I really can, can begin, and, and I'm not the only one, to say, ah, oh, that's a special moment. Something there yeah. is happening really is distinctive um, and, and talk about how it's distinctive. And I think with, with, when you're armed with that knowledge, you're, you can yeah. at least make performances, performance decisions that come, that are grounded in something uh, real in, in the notation and in the, you know, in the composition. Right. Other than, so oh, I, I just like the way this sounds now, that there's some exactly, real so foundation to it. That's always my goal, is to let whatever kind of interpretative decision we're making flow from the evidence of the music and not yeah. be, I don't want it to be my, my idea. As much as yeah. I, I mean, it's ridiculous. Of course, it's my idea, but my goal is to, is for me not to be the one making the decision, but rather to be yeah. letting what's on the page in the context of all this other stuff we know driving driving our thinking. Um, yeah. And the singers have been hugely helpful with that. I mean, I'm you know, it's yeah. a collaborative effort because they have embodied experience too. Right, right. And they know, and things. I think that's what makes it. You know, there's a I, I love. Um, <clears throat> there's a great. My my wife is a 
business lady and she's the COO of a law firm and we read leadership books. We're kind of weirdos, but there's this lady named Liz Wiseman who used to run Oracle, but she, uh, well, Oracle University, but she wrote a book called um, Rookie Smarts and it's about learning how to keep your rookie of, well, I don't know, but I'm going to go find out and how do you ask other experts and how do you ask each other? And she talks about like that approach of collaborative. Okay, well, I don't know this. What do you think here? What do you think here? All to where, okay, what's your experience with this? Okay, well, how does that influence mine? And you kind of create, I think that that's a really cool approach to um, to small ensemble, but even maybe larger ensemble. I think that's something oh. that a small ensemble does pretty intuitively i think that larger ensembles could benefit from doing more of what do we think here just raise your hand there's a hundred of us but l- let's talk okay. about it and you know you it's, you have to moderate that but I, I think that that collaborative thing really helps those gaps of you know what you said you you don't know you know you can't know more than you know right well someone else's knowledge picks up somewhere in that abyss of what you don't know so how can you incorporate that in and i think that's really cool definitely yeah when you're talking about people who themselves are well informed it can be very exciting and uh you know for me i come of course i I prepare i come to rehearsal i have all sorts of ideas i'm ready but my favorite thing in rehearsal is when Mm. let's say there's a passage that's like sticking in my side i just don't feel like i've worked it out and somebody figures out what to do or yeah. even better, when when I have an idea and then someone does something else or suggests something else that's real that's different and better, I love that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because you know, I think too often this becomes all about the performance of our own authority and it's like my yeah. ego and it, and I don't care about that. Um, I mean, you know, okay, that's it's so not, good. Not like, I'm not looking to be wrong all the time, but but that's not the way it works. <laughs> right. It's just like you know, I have all these ideas and we try them out and mostly we're we're you know, it's co-constructed in that way, but there are moments when, when the singers will, for example, just come up with a way to do something that would never have dawned on me, but yeah. it's perfect. It's perfect for that moment. Yeah. And it's that kind of thing. But again, it's like treating it like real music where every yeah. line is, and every phrase is amenable to some kind of decision. Um, that's yeah. not about, you know, pulling a rabbit out of a hat and doing something that's not justified by the, no, it's, it's actually the opposite. It's sort of taking all the lines you've sung and finding what in what this one wants to do. Yeah. Um, while still, by the way, singing the right rhythms and, and the right pitches at the right. right time, which is something <laughs> we haven't talked about yet, but we're really committed to singing the yeah. right rhythms and the right pitches at the right time to the point where with our Akagam album, you can actually put on a metronome often wow. and let it, let it go for a while because we're so interested in, in training to a, to a steady beat, which by the way, is the only way to get this music across because you're singing these flowing lines that actually right. all lock in together. Um, yeah. If and only if there's a beat to unify them. Right. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that's so crazy. That's again where rhythm comes in and some of these mythology, modern mythologies, oh, there's no bar line, so it's very free. No, it's totally backwards. There's no bar line, right. so it's very not free. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think the exact, there's no bar lines. That means you have to work X, like even harder to make sure, because what I love the concept of no bar lines, because you you, you are just singing, it, it helps, you know, I, I, I'm a composer as well. And so I'm always mm-hmm. thinking about this concept of line, and how to make sure that we don't sacrifice the long arc, really of the whole piece. Mm-hmm. for little moments mm-hmm. so i love the but what else it does is i think it would I, I wanted to experiment with my high school students and get a piece that's just even modern like a modern 21st century piece and put it into finale but take out all the bar lines and see what they do because it you would mm-hmm. have to be like okay what is going on like right. it would make you really listen out louder you know exactly and and the way the notation works um is such that very often when you're singing you know it's 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 more i'm actually teaching notation right now um so it's on my mind we we sing every week from facsimile is one of the things we do but um the way the notation it's a much more flexible uh system than ours ours is a is a fun our modern system 
is a, is a fundamentalist system, you could say, and theirs is a contextual system, more contextual than ours. What does that mean? That when you look at a note shape, when you look at a note value on the page, it doesn't always divide into the same number of notes that are smaller than it. It depends on the context. So sometimes it's three beats, sometimes it's two beats, and and that and there's a governing time signature called mensuration sign that 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 tells you how, how that's going to work. So it's not it's not very yeah. difficult, by the way. I could teach somebody to do this in a few weeks, but yeah. um, but but there is there is that sense of context, which means though that when you're singing your line, you need to know where you are in in the in the meter in order just to realize that in just to know how many beats this note is going to last. I need to know where I am. Am I on beat one or beat two? If I don't know that information, I literally can't read the notation. Yeah, so wow. It's just another way there, if you're inside the notational world, which again is not so different from ours, but just a little different, then the very act of singing from original notation forces on you the conclusion that you have to know, you have to know where the beat is and where even the meter is. So is it one, two, or three? Um, and that is unfamiliar to us when you know when we start when we approach this for the first time through modern scores with bar lines which are fine i mean right. there's nothing wrong with that it's just it, it helps if you know how they notated it it really yeah does that's cool yeah i would love to i, I really want to get into some of the some of the nitty-gritty of Joscan, but i would love to have you on again and really go into some some nitty gritty on mensuration and rhythm oh, and sure. these things. Cause it, cause I, I agree. I remember when in, in graduate school, we were talking about sesquialtra and I was like, ses what, <laughs> what are we talking yeah, about? <laughs> right. And we're just like, Oh my gosh. But I, again, it, there's another reason why I think the studying and approach and taking some time, to really sink yourself into early music is because the principles that were established then really haven't changed in the music of today. We've changed a couple of the aesthetics and a little bit, like you said, of the notation, but these principles have proved pretty timeless. And so when, when we come, I found this with myself, when I come to understand that I'm like, Oh, I actually am way better performing modern music too now and right. understand it better because there's these, the, the foundation is there. And so I think it's super fascinating to get really into those things. So I think that's so cool. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I love thinking with students about oh, what sorry, changes you go and for what it. doesn't. No, no, no. It's just, I was just saying, I, I love thinking with students about what changes and what doesn't because conceptually yeah. certain things really are so different. Um, mm -hmm. But others, others, uh, others don't change so much. And actually, the 15th century is a moment where certain kinds of things get established that really do stay with us for a long time. Yeah, um, there, there's a reason why students often perk up when you hit Dufay. Um, yeah, it's sort of like, oh, that sounds modern. What, what, what happened there, right? <laughs> yeah, and that's exactly. Actually quite, quite interesting to think about what it is, you know. But yeah. there, are, there are certain begin to feel more, feel closer. Um, yeah. Although I think actually yeah. you could make the same claim for some 14th century music, you know, especially yeah. music. Yeah, um, and I yeah, I mean into into the use of the modes and and how the the intervals pull you like tendency tones pull that just the nature of a half step could take a, mm -hmm. you could write a whole dissertation on what is a half step and why is it significant, but it, it you know and that kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just like never ending study of why why is a half step so I don't know, it's interesting. But mm -hmm. I will I have been so there's a group in the UK started by Owen Park called Jeswaldo Six. Mm -hmm. And they just came out with an album called Joscan's Legacy. And it's oh, yeah. Joscan and some of his contemporaries. And it's it's really good. It's very much the UK style and that, that kind of aesthetic. But something that and I haven't I haven't read into the to their research yet or anything like that, but it made me think before this interview, I was like, wow, Joscan's legacy, what a cool concept of just a thought. So who, for those of us listening, maybe who may not be as familiar with Shaskan, or we had it in our undergrad survey music history course, what would you say is Shaskan's significance in music history and what is his legacy that he left 
you know, going forward. So why is he this pillar of the yeah. Renaissance? It is, it's a great question. It's very hard to answer on standing on one foot, but I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah. And like, and like here, take your entire career's research and boil it down into like a 15 minute answer. But <laughs> um, I think that, <clears throat> all right. So, so we could talk all about Joscan's reception and how, you know, he's, he's, he becomes famous. He's in the right place at the right time. That, that when he turns, uh, you know, 51 years old is the moment when, uh, Taviano Petrucci in Venice starts printing polyphonic music and, and changes the market for music. And, and so he's yeah. in the right place at the right time and catapults to fame. And, and that explains largely, you know, with, with some other factors, his incredible, unprecedented posthumous fame. So that he dies in 1521, but he's being, music is being copied and printed and performed decades later um, yeah. in, in, across Europe. So that really is an exceptional circumstance and helps explain why his reputation has endured or was rediscovered, especially in the 19th mm -hmm. century and, and, and been at the center of, of discourse on, on music of that period. That, that's all sort of circumstantial. Now the question is, is there anything to back it up in the music, right? And that's, yeah, that's exactly. a place where I think that the cloudiness around the canon of works um, has made it difficult to, to go. Um, yeah. Because, so I, I published an article last month in early music called the Joscan Canon at 500, where I, I uh, we have a big appendix with all 346 uh, works ever attributed to Joscan that give you a sense of which Joshua Rifka and, and I believe uh, we can we can talk about a, a canon of, of about 103 pieces he, he actually wrote. Um, and we, you know, we offer a methodology for, for how we get there and um, try to clear away the cobwebs and, and the magical thinking that has been that is attached to Josquin. Right. In a way that magical thinking attaches to a lot of figures like this, like Bach, for example, is a magnet for right. magical thinking. So we're trying yeah. to- It's kind of myth that. of genius, the legend of genius, right? Big that we- time, Big we... time, and it's difficult to talk about this because it's easy to wave your hands and say, oh, you know, you're just a hero worship and you know, that there's nothing there or, or we shouldn't even be talking about composers at all. And, you know, I think this is right. ultimately not productive. I think it's even anti-intellectual. Um, yeah. I think that there needs to be room to appreciate what's there while also um, being open to everything else. So one yeah. of the things that our slimmer canon has done is actually make the made the legacy more interesting, mm. made the reception richer, because in fact, there's a more pieces that are part of that reception that are part of the, of the not, not only posthumous fame, because there are folks uh, who start writing fake Joscan pieces already in Italy in the 1510s. Yeah, um, wow. And, and that's, it's wild, yeah, and that all needs more thinking about. But if I'm going to try to answer this question, why Josquin at all, uh, for real, I think I think the reason, um, for me at least, is that it combines two disparate things in an incredible way. Um, on the one hand, and there's been more work on this, especially in the last couple of decades, at a, at a technical level, the composing is absolutely brilliant. It's just astonishing what this, this composer manages to get going at the same time. And again, Bach is the, you know, Bach is like a, a, an analog here, that Joscan's capacity to get things to fit against each other, um, the same little idea, the same motive that can fit against itself in different time and pitch intervals. What does that mean? It means uh, yeah. that you can do it right after I do it overlapping with me. Um, you can do it one beat later, two beats later, a fifth below, an octave below, and somehow these things all fit together in this yeah. magical jigsaw puzzle. And and some of the passages where he where he does these kinds of things are just stunning. You know, they they repay close analysis, as we say. Yeah, um, so yeah. It's technical, and you can hear, and you can't hear all that complexity initially, but you can hear the pilings up of of motives and of and of repetition, um, and that's and that can be kind of magical. So at a technical level, uh, formally speaking, these various uh, various ways in, he's, he's quite amazing. But then at the same time, and this is maybe even the more dramatically interesting thing, he uh, composes in a simple way. Uh, yeah. just, uh, it embraces a kind of rhetoric um, that feels very modern, actually, that can feel very modern. And yeah. he's interested in repetition in ways that feel very modern. Uh, a drive to the music, uh, you mm -hmm. know, a way of, of, you know, driving home a point in a way that yeah. feels pretty familiar. You know, he'll do it one time, two times, three times, four times, and then finally it breaks in this incredibly exciting way. Yeah. Um, so those sorts of rhetorical moves that, that ultimately have formal significance that shape the way you might hear a whole section that culminates in a, in a grand climactic moment, 
he's he's not inventing all of that whole cloth, but but a lot of that is coming from from him. Um, yeah. There's this sort of sea change um, in the years around 1480 where he's just coming of age. You know, maybe he's even just right. starting to compose then. And and uh, as Julie Cumming has described it, we shift from a world of variety. This is Akagem to a world of repetition. This is Josquin, yeah. and Josquin more than anyone else takes this and runs with it. Um, yeah, ways that are endlessly interesting and 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 exciting and and so varied. So again, this is why you see why why I'm interested in it in directness in the performance. Right, what I'm describing is a very direct way of composing that I don't think you can hear very well yet in modern yeah. performances very often. Um, so I, I think we need to at least try hearing that and direct yeah. us and see if it packs a punch for us too. <laughs> you know? Yeah, because I think I think you're right in that, especially I don't know. I, you, you look at modern notation, like everything is, and and not this isn't. I don't say this as a critique or a criticism, but like every single, not just the notes, but how everything is supposed to how you're supposed to perform mm -hmm. that note because it's all marked in the score of, okay, well, Tenuto, okay, then Legato and this kind of thing. But, but I think, you know, back in those days where it's like, okay, we just wrote the notes and we kind of talked like you do with cut circle. We talked about it. We do some things intuitively, but those things weren't prescribed in the music that I think because of that, it lends itself to what can we do as performers to help the audience hear it? Because I think you're right that a more just, indirect homogenous approach of if you're going to approach this music the exact same way you approach something modern the audience can't you're not really breaking down the walls of the museum that effectively and and so you have this okay well how are we going to get the audience to come with us and i think that that's exactly the point that you're trying to make. If you if you looking at, at a mosaic floor, for example, you know these very intricate kinds of mosaic work that you'll see on on floors of churches in this period, for example, and you're looking through a a, a lens, um, and the view is out of focus. Um, mm. What are you really What are you really getting from that? <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and to me, that that's about that's the right kind of metaphor for for very distant. Um, well, it's not only about distance, it's about the presence of detail, right? Like yeah. one of the performances of Renaissance polyphony. If I can't hear the details, then I'm, I think I'm missing the point of the, of the music. Um, yeah. Certainly in the hands of a composer like Joskamp, for whom details matter hugely. Right. Problem is, Especially if feels... he's repeating those little elements, oh, then yeah. he's clearly thinking about more details than just that motif. Yeah. Exactly, and often that motif is repeating against something that's taken from somewhere else that's not repeating, and that yeah. itself has a trajectory. And maybe the repeating thing then kind of is joined by the, joined by other voices. It'll do it also while there's some something can, you know there's there's quite a lot going on, um, but yeah. it's for all of its this is what I was saying before for all of its complexity, it really is designed in a certain fundamental way to be accessible. I think to to. Yeah. to you know, hit you over the head sometimes. Yeah. Um, but I don't, that's not really the aesthetic world that we've created for this repertoire. And and the funny thing about it, I think the, the challenge there is that all of this repertoire, everything from the period practically is designed to sound sonorous. Um, it's yeah. consonant. There are lots of dissonances actually, but they're generally very carefully controlled. Mm -hmm. So the overall impression is of a consonant sonorous whole with these flowing lines. and. And the question for me is just, uh, you know, are there maybe diminishing returns on that? Which is to say, yeah. can we appreciate that? I mean, I guess we're going to get that no matter what. Right. Get that no matter mm. what. So let's stipulate that we're going to get that. And then what else is there? Or is it really just all meant to be the same? Yeah. Uh, and I, you can tell what I think about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is awesome. So I, I, I've written down that you said that it, the, the article you wrote is uh, called Josquin Canon at 500, correct? Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll put a link link to that as well, that article, because that, that sounds amazing. And it again, this is probably another impossible question, but I would I would love to, I'd, I can, and I just can pull recordings from, from wherever to put, but I would love to, if, if there was a piece or a hand, small, like two or three that you think most clearly represent, you know, Joscan's um, uh, 
um, in, uh, implication or using of these um, forces or these new concepts and ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, implementation. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> Implementing mm-hmm. these kinds of concepts. What would you What would you say if like no one's heard, listened to Jascan before? Where it's like the first couple pieces you send them to like get yeah. them into the world. That really is a hard question. <laughs> it's like there impossible. Are lots, there are I'm lots sure. of good answers, so I can give you a decent answer that won't be bad. But I could have given you whatever the answer is. I could give you <laughs> other ones that would be maybe better. Um, sure. So what about the, a piece like um, the Misa Lasol Faremi? which is an mm. entire mass constructed on a five-note ostinato. Um, La sol fa re mi. And, mm. and the incessant repetition of that thing, I think, or something around 200 times. Um, in, and yet, you don't really know it's there a lot of the time, right? That's the yeah. whole trick. Um, maybe even more than that, uh, in the same vein, is a mass he wrote probably uh, several years later, decade later called um, the Misa Faisant Regret, French title, which is based on a song, um, but it takes it takes as its organizing principle a four-note motto. Fa, re, mi, re, that's it. Faisant Regret comes out of the song. And that one is really mind-boggling. Again, because you'd think there's no way you don't hear that everywhere. I mean, you yeah. do hear it quite a lot, but the extent to which he's able to conceal it and and make so many different kinds of musical gestures happen around it, in spite of it, through it, on top of it, um, that, that that's sort of extraordinary. But we could, you know, there are there are so many choices. <laughs> it's, not, it's not only about ostinato. That's like one right. one flavor of what he can do. Um, sometimes it's about his crystalline textures, which you can hear all the way back in in what we what the earliest piece of his that survives, which is the famous Ave Maria Virgo Serena. Um, yeah. which really already at that age of, you know, whenever he, whatever, however old he was, his early thirties, probably, uh, he, he's breaking ground with something. And that, in that case, it's mostly about um, repetitions that are more sort of structural, like a pair duet. So a little duo that's then mm. repeats by a different pair of voices, that kind of yeah. thing. Um, there though, I think we run into a bit of a challenge with the performance tradition, where, which has venerated that piece in particular to such an extent that what I think should be about a four four minute motet usually takes six or seven minutes on recordings, <laughs> and so that's what self indulgent and a little self indulgent. <laughs> so I think that the problem is that you know slow is fine. like slow can be very beautiful. The mensuration sign, the, the time signature that they use for that piece that he uses for that piece, which is a standard one, but it's a temp. The time signatures in this period are also tempo indications. That's what they are mm. primarily. And that signature is not a slow one. It's it's the sort of standard, fairly fairly fast one. So there's that. Um, but the, the the issue is not that it sounds terrible or anything. It's that you miss the lines when yeah. it's so slow. Then I think what should be understood as one gesture, one phrase, sounds like two. Um, yeah. And and that really is a problem because I think then you lose a little bit the shape of the piece. So that's one. So we've we've had to um, several times delay a, a Joscan recording because of COVID. Uh, it's that we've sure. had pretty bad luck on that. But we're we're finally now planning to do it in May. Um, cool. And that's a piece that we will record along with other motets and, and with songs. Um, yeah. And we will, we will do it in about four minutes. Not, not to be, you know, really because I think that's what it's asking for, right? That, right. that, that the, the shapes of the lines and the, the joyous text um, yeah. all point toward a really lively, um, yeah, kind of jubilant performance yeah. that, that, that just isn't, isn't what we're used to hearing. So you hear how tempo then becomes, it's not just rhythm and rhythmic energy and, and, and the placement of the microphones and vowels, and it's also tempo. The tempo yeah. is a way, you know, and, and you can overdo it. And some, some will think our tempo is too fast and some would want it to be even faster and fun. But um, tempo is a way that you can help, again, the music come into focus. If we can stick with that repertoire. Of that I metaphor. think that reference is a really good way to look at it because I think you're totally that resonates with me so well and something that I may not have even thought of that clear of terms of that these techniques that if if we're if our argument and I'm talking to myself if my argument is that this music is timeless and that there are elements that literally affect music happening today directly well then we can't gloss over the fact we can't miss those by doing them at the wrong tempo 
because I think I think you're right. I think some of those elements get lost if the tempo's not right. Like when when going through a, a mensuration change, you're not just like changing it to basically be, you know, triploom every time. It's mm-hmm. it's very thought out and and what is he doing or in this moment of this piece that would indicate X, Y, or Z as the idea. And I think that's what needs a little bit more maybe examination. Um, yeah. And and it's not just Shostkin, by the way. These principles right. of mensuration, as tempo indications, mensuration signs as tempo indications are shot through the repertoire. Um, and the, the kind of slightly unfortunate thing is that they're mostly not very difficult at all, right. which is to say right. it, they basically use two or three quote unquote time signatures for all the music. Um, yeah. And we don't know exactly what ensembles did and how much variation there was from ensemble to ensemble. There is a lot we don't know, but we know certain yeah. basic principles. We know that when yeah. you go from this moderate triple meter notated under what we call circles, so it just looks like a circle, to yeah. cut C, that you go from a moderate triple to a faster duple. But if yeah. you turn on recordings of Renaissance polyphony, they do the opposite. Yeah. Almost, it's almost like, like a recipe. That's just the opposite recipe. They slow down when they get to the duple. Why? Probably because um, it, because speeding up chafes against much more recent ideas about the texts that accompany those changes. Mm. So when you go from the Kyrie to the Christe, um, yeah. modern, modern idea would be, oh, you, the Christe, we slow down. It's more reverential still. But actually, none of the music does that. Almost ever. Yeah. It all, almost always speeds up for right. the Christe. Uh, and so part of this is, is actually just taking this very basic evidence we have uh seriously just bothering yeah. to do what we what we know they must have done i don't know if they sped up by you know one click or two clicks or ten for, <laughs> there's a lot of right. we can imagine quite a lot of variety in what went on but this overriding principle seems more or less undeniable um the yeah. same with you're talking about sesquihaltra's fancy term that means three in the time of two they, they, right. they write the three you're going along you're singing and you see a number three in in, in your way and yeah. what comes after that is three in the time of two. It's very simple. That's all it is. It, to us, yeah. it sounds like triplets. That's kind of what it is. Yeah. If you turn on a recording, that's not what you will hear in most cases. Right. You will hear something where maybe the um, the, the the beat is is maintained, but now it's just in three. So you kind of go from one and two and one and two, two, one, two, three, one, two, three. You notice I didn't change yeah. the underlying pulse. I right. just changed how I was counting. Um, yeah. They didn't do that. They just didn't do that. Not in this period. Right. Um, they yeah. did one and two and one and now change to one, two, three, one, two, three. You see, it's an equal relationship. Right, because then it's, yeah. Three things happened where two did before. That's all that can mean. And in fact, again, if you sing this music from, from original sources, you know that's all that can mean because my number three that I encounter when singing my line might occur at a different spot from yours. And so mm. if I don't maintain that absolutely rigid relationship, we will completely fall apart. It will yeah. not work. <laughs> it yeah, will not work. you won't stay together. It will really will not stay together. And this music, you know, you, you live and die based on staying together because sometimes right. the imitation is so close, right? The, 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 the lines are coordinated so closely, but they're not actually together. So you have yeah. to know who's on the beat and who's off the beat. And who's, uh, yeah. So again, these Back are to that concept with no bar lines making you actually have to count more. Better. Exactly. Yeah. So this is again where, you know, I think it's unfortunate sometimes that the original notation is seen as this impenetrable fortress and, and scholars maybe don't always do such a good job of, of breaking down that fortress. I mean, sometimes we get there's cachet and making it seem hard, you know, because then I get to be the expert. But actually, right. that's kind of nonsense. It's not so hard. It's not yeah. so hard. And, you know, the student I'm working with right now um, in, in a notation, um, we were singing this stuff one and apart in week two of, of, this, of the term. Uh, and, awesome. and in week seven, we were looking at one of the most notationally complex pieces ever composed and understanding what was going on, you know, yeah. which is to say that you really can do it. It's not so bad, but, but there have yeah. to be, um, you know, there has to be some amount of immersion and, and a bit of mm-hmm. cutting away of the cobwebs, right? And, and recognizing that for the musicians of the period, they could do this and that you could wake them up at three in the morning and they could sing polyphony, the, the yeah. good one. So yeah. we, we should be able to do, learn to do that too. It's not, yeah. like, not that hard. <laughs> Which is awesome, which is my whole goal. We will all just wake up one day and just sing polyphony together. It would be amazing. Be great. So. Be great. <laughs> well, um, 
Professor Roden, thank you so much. This has been really, really fun. And I, I just feel like I could listen to you for hours and just, oh. <laughs> like, educate me on all this stuff. I think it's so – and, again, I, I clearly have a passion for this too. And I love the idea of being able to say, okay, we can approach – anyone can just approach this. It just takes a little bit of effort. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what that's – what, society more broadly, including myself and my generation and younger, really needs. It's just a little bit of effort, and then you can make it to it. And uh, I think, uh, like you said, you know, these principles of... And I think that there's some great... I don't know, I really resonate with the mission of Cut Circle of being really direct and clear and detailed, because in so doing, you're providing a lens, of a focus lens to the mosaic of that music to the audience to look through. And I think you guys achieve that really well. I think it's amazing. So, Thanks so much. It's great chatting. I'd love to do it again. Yeah, for real. <laughs> That was really fun, and uh, it's just so cool. I don't. I just listen to him. I could listen to him talk about that for days, especially. So I encourage you to get, um, as I have just done minutes ago, actually ordered a copy of Josquin's Rome, the book that he wrote. Um, ta- it goes into Josquin his compositions and the compositional uh, culture of the Sistine Chapel around the time when Josquin was working there. And I'm really excited to read it. Again, his article that he sent me that will be appearing, in, it's in, he's, he said that it's in a magazine that's going to be coming out uh, in the coming months. And so hopefully when we get to have him back on, we'll be able to put that a link to that article in the show notes as well, but it's it's not quite released yet. And then, again, some more things to check out in the show notes uh, by Cut Circle, some videos and things like that. But before we go, I would really love to play a recording of Cut Circle's piece, um, the piece that he mentioned from their Akagam album, Akagam Le Chanson. This is uh, this is the first track of that disc, and even though it's a an album of the works of Akagem, it th- this first piece by Jascan is a deploration or kind of a tribute mourning his death, Akagem's death, set by Jascan, who was a generation later, and so it's kind of it becomes this popular trend moving forward where composers set tribute pieces to certain composers after their passing and this is not the first but it's uh, early on in that tradition a piece by Josquin tributing Johannes Akigem Nymphs de Bois Nymph, Nymph I don't even know how to say it Nymph de Bois Nymph de Bois um, by Josquin Josquin de Prix. there we go I get my French lesson in for the day as I'm clearly significantly out of practice. So here's that recording. Again, this can be found Cut Circle's album, Akagem, Le Chanson, and this is track number one. It can be found, uh, you can buy it where records are sold. This recording's also on YouTube, so look for it there and uh, have a listen.
Okay, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Go check out Cut Circle and be on the lookout for their new album coming out. And we'll hopefully get to have Dr. Roden back on to talk a little bit more, maybe more nuts and bolts about Joscan, some of the things they have coming up. Go check out their YouTube channel. It's fantastic stuff. So if you like the show, please give us a like and a review and a rating. Five stars really helps. And uh, share the news about early music. The news about early music. You heard me right. And we'll catch you next time on Early Music Monday.